the great chain. He sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Now, if you notice what we had just read, he's the third part of the false trinity. The dragon representing the father, the antichrist trying to represent Christ having a resurrection, and then the prophet trying to represent the Holy Spirit. In the verses before, we heard that the prophet and the antichrist were thrown into the lake of fire. Now the devil is thrown into that same lake. Or excuse me, no, he's bound for a thousand years. He's not thrown yet into the lake of fire. Lord, help me. Not to mess this up because it's important to understand this. He's actually put into the abyss, the same abyss that the locust army came out of. Now, this is where we believe that it's going to be on earth. We believe the abyss is on earth now. And from the abyss, the locust army will come forth. And then Satan will be thrown into that abyss. He'll be there for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. So the Bible teaches that the thousand-year reign is literal and that Satan literally is bound during that time, okay? Now, we don't know much about it from the book of Revelation, but we will now begin to see the writer... John began to quote from the Old Testament all the grandiose passages of the Messiah. And remember, it was because of these passages, like the lion laying with the lame, uh, the lion lame with the lamb, lion laying with the lamb. Tried to say that fast three times. Lion laying with the lamb, lion, there we go, getting better. Okay, those kind of passages really made the Jews think that Jesus' first coming was out of order because they they thought when the Messiah comes, there's going to be destruction of God's enemies. That's what we see at the second coming. And they also thought there would be peace on earth, that there would be animal peace, that there would be tranquility in the land. But once again, they missed the distinction between the first coming and his second coming. Everybody go, ah, oh. that's a big deal. you got to get that. If you miss the distinctions, you miss Jesus. And that's why still today, when you talk to Jews, the, one of the most important arguments they're going to make against you is, where's peace on earth. When the Messiah comes, it's supposed to be peace on earth. Where's the government of God? Because remember, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government, a part of that says, and the government will be upon him. So they'll say, where's the government? Where's the rule of Christ? Where's the rule of the Messiah? Where's the peace? Where's the justice? And so then you have to show them that is because there are two comings, the first and the second. So now Satan is bound here, and watch the author John begin to quote Begin to quote, you're going to see this in the NIV with quotations, but if you were a good Jew, you would know where he's quoting from. He's going to start quoting the best and the most grandiose passages of Ezekiel and Isaiah, which talk about this heaven on earth, the kingdom of God on earth experience. Because remember, that has always been the Jewish mindset. When is the kingdom coming to earth? Even when you talk to some Jews today, they're not so concerned about heaven. Yeah, that's okay, we'll get there, you know, maybe or maybe maybe not, depending you know, if they believe in a literal heaven. But if you talk to a Jew about heaven coming to earth, Messiah coming to earth, kingdom coming to earth, that's where they live. That's where their mindset is. As a matter of fact, that was the difference between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, is whether or not there was going to be a literal resurrection and the kingdom coming through those who had also died, or is it only going to come to those who are living? The Sadducees didn't even believe in a resurrection, so if you didn't see the kingdom of God, it was over for you, and that was why they were sad, you see. 
see because they would never get to see the kingdom of God. But the Pharisees believed even if you missed it, even if you weren't alive when it happened, there would be a resurrection for you, and then you could participate. Somebody say the kingdom of God. That's why he taught us to pray in the Our Father, that we are to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come where? On earth as it is in heaven. And so now we understand that when Christ comes on the earth, fulfilling all of these victorious promises, he is keeping his word to Israel. And now all Gentiles who have been grafted in with Israel get to rule and reign. Are you ready? Okay, so let's learn about the thousand-year reign as he begins to describe it here. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. Right, right at the beginning of the kingdom of God, we see now there's thrones on the earth. We've already learned about the 24 elders having thrones in heaven, but now there's thrones on earth. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus, because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their forehands or hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So those right there during the, thousand, uh, during the tribulation, rather, they get to come alive and rule and reign with us. The rest of the dead did not get to come to life until the thousand years were ended. And that's going to be the great white throne judgment. So if you were killed in the battle of Armageddon, you're still going to be in hell until the great white throne judgment comes a thousand years later and then get thrown into the lake of fire. But if you were one of the righteous who died during the time of the tribulation, you get to be resurrected here. That's what it's talking about. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in this resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So now all of the Christians, the saints from, from all times past, come with Christ on the horses at the battle of Armageddon. They are now on earth. Thrones are set up. And the author here, John, is making sure that we understand that if you were a tribulation saint, you're not going to miss out on ruling and reigning with Christ. You will come to life in a glorified body and be kings and priests with God in Christ, the Father and the Son. Now, that's all we really Really get. Now notice this, we jump to right to when the thousand years are over, and then we're going to go back into exalted language about what this time period is going to be like, but, but John wants to summarize this whole experience. When the thousand years are over, so it's like, what do you do between verses 6 and 7? 6 says we're reigning, and 7 says it's over. What is that like? I mean, that's where you got to use your imagination, and we'll put some meat on the bone with these other prophecies that are going to come later uh, being fulfilled, but just think about how amazing that's going to be. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from prison, from his prison, and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. And that's found in Ezekiel 38 and 39. In the number, in number, they are like the sand of the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth, surrounded the camp of God's people, that the city that he loves, that's Jerusalem, but fire came down from heaven and devoured them. So there's no like great battle here. It's just they come against God, <laughs> fire comes down, they're barbecued. Can I hear an amen for some barbecues going on today. Amen. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now notice hell has no end. And Matthew says that if you don't serve God, you go to the same hell or, or excuse me, lake of fire that the devil and his angels go to. And it's forever and ever, time without end. Now this is kind of curious to us and makes 
you know, theologians sit back and ask, what in the world's going on here? A thousand-year reign ends with a great battle of Satan deceiving the nations again. Why is this? Well, our best explanation is that God wants to show for a thousand years what life is like without Satan. He wants to show what his kingdom is like when he is the only voice that people hear spiritually. So there's not really another option. That's what he wants to show, is what, the, what, what it would have been like from the Garden of Eden point of view. He wants to show them what the wrongs made right look like. But then at the end, for those who have been born in the millennial kingdom, he wants them to have the same choice that Adam and Eve had, that the angels had, and that we had on earth, because it's only fair that they can make a choice. And now, at this point, he gets to deceive again, and then the people who now get a choice, many of them, multitudes of them, a great number of them, choose to rebel against God. So what does that show us about God's righteousness and justice? That he can never make you do what you don't want to do. And even after living with God on earth, people will be deceived to want to follow Satan. Satan did it in heaven with the angels. Angels knew God. There wasn't a question of atheism up there. It wasn't a question of God's power. It was a question of do we want to do it God's way? Selfishness, pride, root of all evil. Can I hear an amen to that? And so here, as God displays his power through the millennial reign, he still says, to be fair, to be just, I will give those who were on earth during the time when I ruled and reigned a choice, an opportunity to decide who they will serve. And so somehow, Satan convinces them. And maybe it's the same kind of convincing he did with Adam and Eve and the different times he's been in human history. He comes to them, says to them, oh, look how unfair this is. We're all servants of this God. We should be able to be our own people, our own God. God should create for us a kingdom somewhere away from his kingdom. Let's go down there and protest and storm the gates of heaven and tell God what we really think about him. And that's how I think it happens. I don't have many more details than that. And some people, because of how strange it seems, they try to put this back into the times of the Battle of Armageddon, like it's a repeat, a retell, but now with different details. There's no way it can be that way because we're told that there's a literal thousand-year reign, and after that, this happens. So to follow the timeline and to be consistent, once again, if you take it allegorical, then you can make it say anything you want, but if we're taking it in the timeline, it says it happens after the thousand-year reign, after he's bound for a thousand years. Well, once again, if it's allegorical, what is allegorical of a thousand years, if not a thousand years? What is allegorical of binding the devil for a thousand years, if not binding the devil? What, what other things do we get from those kinds of messages? It is clear to us that we're supposed to take a thousand-year reign literal, and we're supposed to take the devil being bound literal, and we're supposed to understand after he's literally bound, he's released, deceives the earth, but then he is destroyed along with those whoever he deceives, okay? And Gog and Magog are characters. Uh, Gog is the leader of Magog in Ezekiel 38 from the north that, that is prophesied will come against Ezekiel, and sometimes people see that as a dual fulfillment or only fulfilled in the end times. Now, let's go back here to verse 11. 
Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, the earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. So after this last battle with Satan, now everything we know as heaven and earth disappear. I almost think of this like in the Matrix, when you see uh, Neo go into the Matrix and everything disappears, and it's just a white screen, you know, a white background. I see now God just eliminate all that we would know as the natural known universe. It disappears. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. So now it's all just about the kingdom of God spiritually, the throne, and books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. So there's books. Everybody notice the, the difference here. There are books open, plural. Somebody say books, and then somebody say the book of life. Okay, see, that's it. See, there are books opened, and then another book. So on one side, you got books, plural books, and then over here, you got one book. Somebody say one book. Trust me, you want to be in the one book, not in the plural books. Because the plural books is going to be every single deed you've ever done. And only one sin, you only need one sin to disqualify you from heaven. Come on, somebody. How many know there's going to be a lot of chapters on people's lives? There's going to be a lot of books on people's lives. There's going to be more than one sin over there. And God will be just. Just like if you've ever tried to challenge your cell phone company, you're like, man, I don't know about this bill. And then they send you a bill that's like three pages long, and they're like, got you here, got you here. got You're like, oh, man, I forgot about that. If you go to war with your cell phone company, you better come ready. Are you all listening? You ever go to war with Comcast, you better come ready because they'll give you a 20-page bill and say, look through that. This is how we added up this and added up that and added, and you know, come on. I remember back in the day, you were charged for text, and I would have to go through each one because I was like, man, how did I get to 100? You know, you know I'm talking about some more old school who had those phones, and you had to pay for long distance, and you'd go through it. Come on. So here we're, we're getting the idea now, white throne judgment. White throne judgment is not for our rewards. It's just for us to have the entrance into the kingdom of heaven. We've already been judged and rewarded based according to our Christian life when we came up to heaven. During that time of tribulation, we were given our places of authority and proper rewards so that we could come down and rule and reign. Now the great white throne judgment is about everybody knowing their eternal space now, where they're going to be. Are they going to be in the lake of fire or in God's new heavens and earth? The dead were judged according to what they had done or what was recorded in those books. The seed gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they'd done. Everybody say, look out. See, because they say only God can judge me. Here it is when God judges you. You are judged according to everything you have done. So now notice this. Death and hell give up their, their dead. So that means that really hell is just the county jail waiting for the white throne judgment court date to get set to the penitentiary, which is the lake of fire. How many understood that example? If not, go back and rewatch it, okay? But, you know, you get arrested, you go to county, then you go to court, then you go to the penitentiary. And if you think about it, that's really what's going on here. Now everyone is going to go to hell that doesn't have, everyone that's been in hell is going to go to the lake of fire. Verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Which death is it? Second death. Thank you. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. And this is also prophesied in Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 32. Now, here's where we go to the description of everything that God's going to do in the new heavens and earth. But hold up just for a minute. When you go to these prophecies of new heavens and earth, a lot of it also covers the millennial reign. 
So you have to be able to discern when you read these prophecies about what's happening. Is it describing millennial reign or is it describing the new heavens and the new earth? Because the prophets put them together. And that's why now as we see these descriptions and we go back and read some of these passages, you may be a little bit confused and I want to share this with you now. It's because they saw it as one thing. Just as they saw Christ coming as one, they describe it as one. And that's okay because we know that when we go back, we can discern, and then it's not like God made a dis- mistake, but when God talks, he likes to talk in big pictures. He likes to give us vision. He likes to give us faith. Somebody say amen. Amen. So just to give you what someone might try to point out as a contradiction, but it's not, it's like when we go to Isaiah and Ezekiel passages, it's, it's going to sound like new heavens and new earth talk, but it's also going to talk about us ruling and reigning over nations, subjecting them, literally having them lick the dust off our boots and them taking care of our fields. That's what it's going to talk about. It's going to talk about conquering language. And some people will go, literally, they'll say, well, the new heavens and the new earth, we actually rule over people for all of eternity that have uh, either sinned in their past lives, so they're going to now be a part of our ruling and reigning, or they're going to be keep getting created. There'll be a humanity that follows, and we'll be the lords over them. We'll be the kings over them. Now, I don't see either one of those as a, as a, as a framework, so I actually just believe that whenever you're reading the, the, te- the prophets, the testimony of them, that they're actually combining those two thoughts, and you have to use Revelation, the book of Revelation, to clarify when is the millennial reign, when we're actually ruling over people with a rod of iron, subjecting them to the kingdom of God, and when we're now into the new heavens and new earth. But once again, If the new heavens and new earth is now a different form of humanity that we rule over, are you all going to have a problem with that? Are you going to rule over some folks? Because, I mean, if he just says, hey, I'm creating a new heavens and new earth, and there's still going to be a humanity that's around, but you guys are going to be the Thors forever over these people, are you going to have a problem with that? No, you're going to be like, I'm going to be whoever God wants me to be. You know, because remember, you saw what angels, what happened to angels when they said they wanted a different job assignment. (laughs) Right? They got cast out of heaven. So, you know, we may be like those kind of creatures ruling and reigning over the Nauvoo of uh, Avatar. You know that movie? God might create different alien beings and we rule. I don't know. But I think a safer way to understand is that the prophets are given general insight of big picture, faith-filled things. And we're supposed to separate how we understand the timeline from the thousand-year reign to the, um, the new heavens and new earth. But Revelation is very clear. Thousand-year reign happens over here. Uh, you know, Satan is bound up, and this happens afterwards. Very clear for us. That's why I'm confident in taking that approach. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth, first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. So now this is the first difference that we see in the new heaven, the new earth from the old way of things. There is now no more sea. Do we have a sea now? On this planet, is is there oceans and seas? Amen. But there's not going to be any of that then. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Now, I want you to notice that this comes from Isaiah. 
it didn't cl uh, click up here because I was adding some more passages today. But this comes from Isaiah. In that same passage, it says if a child lives, uh, if a person uh, dies to be 100, they'll be still considered a child in the kingdom of God. So now, once again, do we have a contradiction? It says in one place, there's no more death. Right here, it says there's not going to be any more death. Do you see it? No more death. How many see there's no more death here? Okay, I'm just going to work it through with you guys because I want you to be prepared if anybody ever brings this up to you. So let me give you the notes right here. I'll only do this with the one time. But I want to show you where the prophets combine it. And if you don't use uh, our interpretive method, you'll uh, be stuck with the contradiction. And how many don't like contradictions? Okay, so let me go here. Sometimes on Sunday mornings, the servers work slow, which you know the devil's a liar. You know, why all the other days of the week I can refresh and do things and it comes up quickly to the server. But on Sundays, whenever I get a little extra land yap, a little extra, it's messing with me. Okay, now let's go to uh, Isaiah in our scriptures, chapter 25, verse 8. And I'll show you how this can be uh, used as a contradiction. But if you take our understanding of a timeline, it should be fine. Brother, let's go ahead and put that up with the scripture, please. Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8. How many want to work the word with me today? Amen. On Father's Day, we're going to work the word. Sometimes I can just keep it easy for you, but I like making it a little bit more difficult. Amen. Show you what could possibly be brought up as a contradiction. Now, notice this right here. Notice it where it says, uh, let's, let's go back up to, let's go to verse 8. He will, yeah, start at chapter 25, verse 8 of Isaiah, please. He will swallow up death forever. The Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. Okay, now look here, verse 10. The hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, but Moab will be trampled in their land. Okay, now I'm going to go to the 100 year, the person still having death. But let me just br bring this up here because I, I, I got two passages confused. But let me just show you how it can be seen as a contradiction. See, we just saw here that all the tears is going to be taken away. You, you saw that, right, in verse 8? Does everybody see all the tears taken away? But then there's a nation that we're trampling on. How many know they're going to cry when we trample on them? <laughs> okay? So now what, what, what happens here? See, because when you go here to the passage, this is being quoted in the new heaven and new earth. It says there's not going to be any more death, no more tears. And we got that from here. He got it from Isaiah. But if you keep going from chapter 8, I mean uh, chapter 25, verse 8 on down, it says you're trampling on people. So which one is it? Well, it's both. And the reader is supposed to have the discernment to know which is being applied to what. What is the thousand-year reign? That's when we're trampling on Moab. When is there no more crying and no more tears? That's when we are in the new heavens and new earth. Does everybody get it? The difference between the millennial reign and the new heavens and new earth. Now, if you go, Pastor, I don't know if I believe you. Well, now you got a problem with Revelation because Revelation says the thousand-year reign is over, and now there's a new heaven and new earth. Did it say the thousand years happened during the new heaven and new earth? No, it said, after, then I saw. Then the timeline. Does everybody get that? Okay, now let me just show you the one with the child here, and then I'll show you that there's a, could be a possible there. A child lived to 100, and that's in Isaiah as well. Let me get that scripture reference so you can see it, just so you can know how to work the word. Go to Isaiah chapter uh, 65, verse 20, and it will do the same type of thing. You're going to see in the same place of New heaven and new earth language, you're going to see the same thing of millennial language, okay? Isaiah chapter 65, verse 20. 
Now notice this here. I got it, my brothers. Thank you. Now notice how it's going through here. Notice what it's talking about. He's talking about rebuking these nations, tearing them down. And it says uh, what he's going to do to them. Now notice all of this language here is to the idolaters, how he's going to destroy them for what they have done, okay? I will bring forth descendants from Jacob, from Judah, those who will possess my mountains. My chosen people will inherit them, and they, there will, where my servants live, okay? So this is all uh, millennial language. But look, right here, verse 11. But as for those who forsake the Lord and forget his holy mountain, who spread a table for fortune and fill bowls of, uh, fill bowls of mixed wine for death, I will destine you for the sword, and all of you will fall in slaughter. See, now once again, this is talking about what we will do when we come to rule and reign, because how many know not everybody's going to want to submit to the rule of Christ when we come on the earth? How many know there's going to be some stuff? And that's why we're going to have to say, don't start no stuff, won't be no stuff, because we're kind of like invincible, okay? We're kind of like invincible at that time. We're ruling and reigning like angelic beings on the earth, and they're still fighting against us. Now look at what it says. It says, my servants will eat. So we're eating there, but you're going to go hungry. My servants will drink, but you're going to go thirsty. See, notice all of this exalted language is what we would combine into the millennial reign, into the new heavens and new earth. And this is why the Jewish folks, they didn't see Christ in his first coming uh, as the real Messiah because he didn't do any of this. Now, working our way all the way down to verse 20, just so you can see the context, and it says starting in verse 17, see, I'm going to create a new heavens and new earth. How many know that's the new heavens and new earth we're reading in Revelation? It's not like he's going to create three or four new heavens and new earth, okay? You all get that. He says, the former things will not be remembered. They will not be called to mind. Rejoice over what I create, for I will create, I will create Jerusalem to be delight. Now, it's people for joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem. The sound of weeping and crying will not be heard in it anymore, okay? Never again will there be an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at 100 will be thought a mere child. <laughs> Uh, hold on. Why is somebody dying? Go right back up. Did you catch it? See, I'm showing you contradictions you're not even catching because some of y'all ain't reading your Bible. <laughs> I got to help you to be confused to get you unconfused. Some of you just confused right now. But I have to help you to understand the scripture because some of you are going to show up at the wrong place and wrong time thinking you understand revelation. And someone's going to take this Bible and boop you on the head with it. And then you're going to make both of us look dumb. Do you understand? They're going to say to you, hey, do you even know where new heavens and new earth comes from? You're going to be like, no, it comes from Isaiah, and people die there in the new heavens and new earth. See, we get to rule over humanity forever. That's what forever is in the kingdom. you got to be able to explain to them why we believe there's no longer a humanity like that. The reason is, is because we believe this language of the prophets combines millennial talk and new heavens and new earth talk. So when he's talking here about new heavens and new earth, that's what we're talking about. When he goes here and he says this is going to be when people die at 100, they're still going to be considered young. He's going back to the millennial. And so you might say, Pastor, that sounds unfair to us. We should just have it all worked out in a nice, clean timeline. Talk to God who wrote the Bible, folks. Because I'm going back to Revelation. Because remember, Revelation is revealing to me the details the prophets saw in mystery. The details are now being revealed. There's two comings in Isaiah. They never saw it. They only saw it as one. There is two kingdoms in Isaiah. One's a millennial one and one's an eternal one. You may not like how they're combined together. You may want to go back to Judaism and say, I don't like how Jesus didn't do it all the first time. Then you'll be in it. You'll be with the Antichrist. Come on, somebody. 
Or you can sit back like me and go, okay, Holy Ghost, teach me how you do this because my American culture and timeline and point A to point B is not how you're doing. You go from A to Z to C back to D to F to E, and that's how you want me to understand it. Okay. Because the book of Revelation gives you no choice. By the time you get here, and trust me, I have listened to people try to wrangle this. If you go allegorical, that's the only way out. The moment you just pull this out of its context and go, a thousand-year reign of Christ, it's metaphorical for the reign of the church, and that's where we all become glorified in Christ at the second coming. And all of this here of the new heavens and new earth, that just means it's a new season and God's going to do a new thing. You take all of this allegorical, it's meaningless. Why are we even reading it then? Because you can make up a meaning, I can make up a meaning. If we're going to take a thousand to mean a thousand, and we're going to mean a reign to mean a reign, and we're going to mean Satan is in, the, is, is in the abyss and all of that, we now have to understand that that's what it's moving on to now. It's moving on to next, a new heaven and new earth. And when he starts quoting these passages, he's quoting passages that contain millennial language. Can I get an amen if you at least understand what I'm talking about? You may not agree with it, but at least you understand what I'm talking about. And how many know I'm excited to go back to preaching something other than Revelation next week? How many know that? Because looking at half of your faces right now, you don't like this. You just, you like, I think some of you just wish I would pick a way of doing it, just stick with it, and never tell you any other controversy. And just hope you never run into anybody that's going to boop you on the head with the Bible, right? Okay, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared as a beautiful, uh, a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. How many know that's coming from Isaiah? We've just gone through the references. Sometime later this week, that server will catch up, and the those notes will be there for you. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So if Revelation, everybody get this, because I'm not doing any funny business with the Bible. If Revelation tells me, after he has quoted Isaiah that has death happening in that same context, if he then tells me there's no more death, I better interpret Isaiah the way the one on the throne is interpreting Isaiah. The way the one on the throne interprets Isaiah is from this point on there is no more death period amen verse 6 he said to me it is done I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Remember this, this is the Father speaking. He calls himself Alpha and Omega, beginning and end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. That's in Isaiah as well. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Now go to Revelation chapter 2. Somebody say victorious. I owe this to Pastor Steve out there in Rockford. I heard him preaching on this, and I got to show you this because it ties in so good. Do you know that all seven of the churches only have one thing in common about what they are told, and that is to be victorious? Can I hear an amen to somebody who wants to be victorious? Starting with the first church here in Ephesus, notice what he says to them. He says here at the end, to the one who is what? 
victorious, I will give him the right to eat of the tree of life. The next church, Sir Myrna, what does he say to them right here? He says to the one who is what? Victorious will not be hurt by the second death. Come on, somebody. Let's preach as we finish this out today in this church today. I'm so glad we got some victorious people. To the one who is what? Victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. That was the third church. Thyatira, the fourth church. What does he say to him? Say to them down there at the bottom? He says to them, Oh, to the one, thank you, verse 26, to the one who is victorious, does my will to the end, I will give what? Authority over the nations. They will rule them with an iron scepter. Talking now, now you know specifically about the millennial reign. Uh, Fifth church, Sardis, what does he say to them right here? Verse 5, the one who is victorious will like them be dressed in white. I will never brought out that name from the book of life. Hallelujah. Sixth church, Philadelphia, what does he say to them? Verse 12, the one who is what? Victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. And then the last church, Laodicea, even after he rebuked him, what he's saying, verse 21, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on the throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Praise God. Isn't that amazing that as the book begins with the church being told to be victorious, it ends with the church in the victorious church. So we are called to be a victorious church. So those who are victorious will inherit all this. I will be their God and they will be my children. Verse 8, but the cowardly, notice that's the first one there, fearful, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Come on, that's real, isn't it? See, we believe in eternal punishment, an eternal conscious punishment separated from the presence of God. Don't be there. Inherit the kingdom of God. Be victorious no matter where you are today in your life, making sure that I stop even now to preach the gospel. Make sure you are ready to meet Jesus, whether it's the rapture or your death or at his second coming. You are ready to meet Jesus. Amen. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the last seven plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And remember, she's the opposite of the whore of Babylon. Just like Jerusalem is the opposite of Babylon, so is the whore the opposite of the bride. We are part of the bride. We are part of Jerusalem. Amen? Amen. And he carried me away in the Spirit. Got to always see the Spirit. We always hear about the Father and Son, but you got to see the Spirit there as well, our triune God. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great mountain high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It, was, it shone with the glory of God. Its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. You can use your imagination with these things here. It's beautiful. It had a a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. So forever, New Jerusalem is labeled with the 12 tribes of Israel. That's how important Israel was to God and always will be. 13. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. So, you know, it's four-sided. The wall of the city had 12 foundations. On them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. 
So here you see that, that the, uh, the 12 tribes of Israel are named on every one of the gates and on the foundation are the apostles. And I believe that after Judas committed suicide, Jesus picked Paul to be his 12. The disciples picked Matthias for casting lots, but that was an Old Testament way to do it. And Jesus picked Paul. So I believe Paul is the 12th apostle there. Nothing to argue about. You can have your own opinion on that. And now we get the description of the size of this city. Notice this. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square. As long as it was wide, he had measured the city with the rod, the rod and found it to be 12 12,000 stadia in length, approximately 1,400 miles. So sometimes people are like, where are we all going to live? Trust me, you'll see where you're going to live. And as wide and as high as it is long. As wide and high as it is long. So it's like a big box. The angel measured the wall using human measurement, and it was 144 cubits thick. So 200 feet wide, wider than from this wall all the way down probably to the block. Come on, somebody. Almost the size of a football field wide. So that's how wide it is. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold as pure as glass. The foundation of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper. So now it's going to name all 12 here. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh crystallite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jaconeth, and the twelfth amethyst. The 12 gates with 12 the 12 gates were 12 pearls each gate made of a single pearl. So when people talk about going to heaven and seeing a pearly gate, that's not actually accurate. The pearly gate is the new Jerusalem on earth. And the great street of the city was of gold as pure as transparent glass. As well, people think of pearly gate and streets of gold in heaven. Pearly gate and street of gold is on earth. Somebody say on earth. That's where it's at in the new Jerusalem. Here is now a kind of mock representation of to scale of what 1,400 miles wide will look like on our globe. Now, understand there's not going to be any sea, but this is how big it's going to be. It's going to cover multiple continents, Europe and Asia. It is going to be huge. Now, you've got to understand that even just right now, they say that the population of the world, about 7 billion, could live in the state of Texas because of just, you know, you know everybody having a certain amount of square feet. This is going to be large enough for us to live in this place and to enjoy God's rule and reign from here, okay? And the way it comes down, you know, this is the, one of the artist renditions that I had here, is having all of those foundation stones and the, the gates and all of this. And, of course, these pictures can't do it justice. But how many are excited to live in New Jerusalem? Amen. That's what the Bible promises us, and I believe it. Now, Notice another difference. One of the differences is there's no sea. Now we're going to get in, in on, this, on this earth, in the millennial reign, there's sea. Notice this next one. I did not see a temple in the city. But remember, we had a temple in the millennial reign. And as a matter of fact, when you go back to those prophecies, guess what's happening in Ezekiel and Isaiah? There's still temple sacrifice. And so most of us believe that those sacrifices happening in the millennial reign are memorial sacrifices. Just like how we take communion as a memorial, there'll be sacrifices being made there and some good barbecue. How many are you going to enjoy some good barbecue at the temple? And it's just going to be ongoing as a memorial. Not for, not for the sake of giving us forgiveness, but 
to be a reminder of what Christ did for us. Otherwise, you have to take that symbolic, and I don't. I take a lot of this literal. So when it talks about us going to the temple of God, offering sacrifices, and then people clinging on like seven Gentiles, clinging on to one Jew, going, hey, take me to the temple. They're like, okay, come on, I'll take you there. You know, And then they're offering sacrifice. I believe that's all happening, but it's memorial sacrifices, okay? Verse 22, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and Lamb are its temple. Notice all that language where God and the Lamb share it together. That's how we know it's the Father and Son. Verse 23, the city does not need a sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the lamp, the Lamb is its lamp. How many know I'm getting tested with, t- with talking today? The Lamb is its lamp. Another difference, there's no more sun, there's no more moon, and there's no need ever for a light. So just imagine how translucent and bright and glorious that place is going to be. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. This is the only verse that supports people connecting the millennial kingdom passages into the new heavens and earth passages is because they'll say, look, there's kings here of nations, and isn't now Jesus the only king? Who are we king, or what are they kings over, if not other humans? And so now they'll make their argument from here and say the, the millennial reign is a separate reign than the new heavens and new earth, but the new heavens and new earth still has humans living and dying that we're ruling over, and they'll point to this. And then this is where I say that we're a lot of of, you know, people think about what they're going to do in heaven. They're going to go fishing, et cetera, et cetera. But we're not going to do any of that in heaven. All of that's going to be, you know, glory to God, being around his throne, all of that. And then the millennial reign, we're not going to be about wakeboarding and climbing mountains. We're going to be like putting people in check, ruling and reigning over them. I think where we get to do all that God has given in our hearts to dream to do, I think is in the new heavens and the new earth, where like whatever you like, fishing, wakeboarding, surfing, whatever, is going to be there. And the kings of the earth, I believe, are the faithful Christians, people like in this church and other churches, will be over those areas as you come to operate or use your giftings, live out your dreams and fantasies. There will be rulership and leadership there. So in other words, somebody got to run the Disney World that you're going to go be at every single day. Somebody's got to run the place where you want to go fishing. Somebody's got to go be there. And so I believe in the millennial reign, we'll be ruling over each other. uh, Excuse me, did I say millennial reign? I meant the, uh, the new heavens and new earth. I believe in the new heavens and new earth, we will be ruling over each other, not a separate human race. We'll be ruling over each other and that we will be assisting each other to do the things that we want to do. So not all of us there will have the same rank either. Just like we all won't have the same rank in the millennial reign, I don't believe we'll all have the same rank there. So hopefully that makes sense because like I said, somebody's got to run those territories. Verse 25, on no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honors of the nations will be brought to it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names is written in the Lamb's book of life. So just to give you my picture of the new heavens and new earth, is that in New Jerusalem is where we all get to live and have a place. But if you want to venture outside of New Jerusalem to do things, there will be order to the different parts of the planet that you can participate in. There will be kings over those lands. But those kings also have citizenship in the New Jerusalem because we have all come from there. And if we want to go explore Earth or possibly other planets, because we don't know how many other planets are going to be there, we'll always consider New Jerusalem our home. Okay, so that's how I do it uh, to make it uh, come back together. 
Amen. Now, last chapter of the last book of the Bible. You guys ready for this? Amen. Vinny, would you come, please? You guys have been an amazing church. Appreciate your patience during this time. I have learned with you. I have stumbled quite a bit through this, but I hope that you've been blessed. Here is the last chapter. 21 verses of glorious bliss. Then the angel showed me the river of life as, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, Father, Son, and Spirit. The river is the Holy Spirit. The Father is who we know as God, and the Lamb is the Son, flowing down the middle of the great city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit in every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. There will not be a need for the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. So imagine you just heard and saw all of this happen, and you're in 90 AD. How many know that's encouraging at this point? The angel says, listen, these words are trustworthy and true. We're seeing them work out in our day. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Look, I am coming soon. Jesus is talking here. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. I, John, now he tells us who he is again, reminds us, takes his authority, someone that we can trust. He goes, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. So not even just to worship the angel, but almost like to go down to his feet and pay him some type of honor and then worship God. Because we know he's not dumb enough to try to worship a creature, but he's going to do that kind of homage that someone tried to do to Peter. Even though they knew Peter was not God himself, they're going to try to give this person homage, this creature homage, and the angel won't even allow that. The angel will not even allow him to worship at his feet God and give him that homage that would be like towards a king or some type of royalty. This shows us that Jesus cannot be an angel, and he's not just a mere king because he doesn't only allow you to worship at his feet the God of Israel. He also allows you to worship him as you're worshiping the God of Israel. Do you understand the distinction there? This is powerful. You have to see that angels don't even allow you to get by them to offer up worship. They have to step aside and say, don't even worship at my feet when you're worshiping God. Don't do that. Don't do that. Now, at one place in the Bible, sinners are allowed to worship at our feet as they worship God in the earlier part of Revelation. But that's because now they have to pay us that homage for all the disrespect that they did. But this angel... And John are on the same level, and I've already understood who God is and all of those things. And so he will not even allow him to be by him when he worships. Okay? Let's get that point across. I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, don't do that. I am a servant with you and your fellow prophets, and with all who keep the words of this scroll, worship God. Then he told me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this scroll, this scroll because the time is near. Let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the one who is vile continue to be vile. 
Let the one who does right continue to do right, and let the holy person continue to be holy. Sometimes people may take this almost like fatalism, like why should we go out and preach just let everybody do what they're going to do? But that would contradict what Jesus had already told the churches. He told them, repent, you know, change, do all these things. What does this actually mean here? I believe this is God speaking to the free will of, of his creatures. God chose to give us a choice. And if you want to keep doing wrong, keep doing wrong and see what's happened, what's going to happen to you. That's what I think Jesus is saying here. He's not saying that we still shouldn't go out and preach repentance to those who are doing wrong and that we should just throw up our hands and say, well, I'll just see you all go to hell then. No, we're supposed to let everybody know. If you have in your heart to do evil and that's what you want to do, well, do it then because see what's going to happen to you. That's how you're supposed to say to someone who's made that choice. But you're also supposed to say, there's going to be a consequence. Read the book of Revelation. And if you still get to the end and you don't want to change, well, then see what happens to you. Verse 12, because we can't beg anybody. How many know Jesus is not begging? How many know on Judgment Day he's not crying anymore? He's rejoicing as he's crushing his enemies. Jesus speaking again. Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me. I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Oh, hold on. I thought that was only a title for the Father. Remember he said that a few chapters earlier? No, that's also a title for Jesus because they share the same titles, the same attributes, and the same name of Yahweh. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs. See, outside is the lake of fire. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. He's the root from which David came from. And then when he came in the flesh, he came off of one of David's branches. Isn't that amazing? He is the root and the offshoot of David. Praise God. That's why David said to, to, to the Messiah, Lord. He calls him Lord. And that's, remember, uh, one of the arguments Jesus brought up to the, the Jews. He says, if, if the Messiah is just the son of David, why does he say unto him, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make you enemies. If he's a son, why does he call David Lord? How many understand the argument of Jesus? It's because Jesus is not just the son of David. That's only from the flesh. But as his nature is divine, he is the root. He is the one who created David and the offspring of all Israel. Amen? The spirit and bride say, come. Hallelujah. And let the one who hears say, come. So even as you're hearing us call out to you to come, you're supposed to say, come, come, to all your friends and everybody else. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life come. Remember when Jesus said during the Feast of Tabernacles, if anyone is thirsty, let them come unto me. Verse 18, John here giving us his last warning. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. And if anyone takes words away from the scroll of this prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this scroll. How many know that's why I would rather be wrong for taking it literal than make it allegorical till it has no sense? Because I don't want to take away anything from the scroll. I've had, I mean, I want everybody to look up at me. I've had people mock my point of view. 
And, and Bible scholars say, you really believe Satan gets bound with a literal chain in the abyss? Ha, ha, ha. That literally can never happen. How can he be bound with a chain? That is allegorical of this, this, and this. And a chain is this. And abyss is this. And I'm like, no, no, no. I, I can't do that. If it said a chain binds him, God makes a chain that binds him. If it says it's in the abyss, I believe it's in the abyss. Because I fear God when I come to this. So let them take their chances on that. But I just say to even those who have followed me through this, no matter which way you want to interpret it, you better just filter it through this scripture. Take it serious. Don't just throw it off and say, well, it can mean whatever anybody wants it to mean. No, I think there's one meaning, and we're all striving towards that. And the more we get to the literal, actual meaning, the better off we'll be. Going the route of allegory is is a... is a path into a ditch, and it dishonors the words that were given to us, because why were they given to us if not to be taken serious? He says, if anyone doesn't take these words, or anyone takes away from these words, from the scroll of this prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and the holy city, which are described in this scroll. Verse 20 and onward, the last two verses of the Bible here. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. And we all say, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. And all people said, Amen. Let's stand up and give it up for Jesus today. We read the end of the book and we win. Come back, Jesus. We're waiting for you. Maranatha, my Lord. Hallelujah to the King of kings and to the Lord of lords. The Lamb that was slain shall receive his kingdom. Hallelujah. Praise God. What an amazing time together with you. Altar workers, would you come? I pray that you now can go back through all of the lessons and have questions answered, maybe in your Bible studies and life groups. I have links all throughout those notes. You can go back even today and learn more about Gog and Magog. Go back and read through these scriptures as you are led this this season of your life, to learn about revelation, the revelation of Christ and how he comes to set everything in order, fulfilling the promises that he made to the prophets. But I want to ask you this, to not just take it as metaphorical or allegorical, but as a literal coming, that Jesus is coming and that it's very soon and that what we see now is not going to be here forever. So often we as Christians feel so you know, overwhelmed and underpowered by what's going on in our world. We feel like, what can we do to change all of this? But we're supposed to look at the end and say, God is going to take care of it. So we ought to be about his business now. Because God will take care of it once and for all, that doesn't mean I become lazy. Because I know God takes care of it, I'm to be working towards it. Does everybody get that? I work towards what my Father will complete through Jesus Christ. That's why he said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added unto you. So we are on our jobs to seek this. In our families, Father, seek this. What does it look like in your home to have the kingdom of God? What does it look like on your job? What does it look like in your Bible studies? What does it look like, you know, at your barbecues and enjoying summer? What does the kingdom of God look like? It should look like what he's asked us to do, to be faithful to the end. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for bringing us here today. We thank you for your word. If you already know Jesus and you're excited for him, would you just start praying? 
Just start praying that you'll be right. I want to pray for those maybe who are not ready to meet Jesus. Maybe revelation scares you because you're not ready. Would you search your heart and repent of your sins right now if you're not right or if you're hiding things from God or if you've never really made him the Lord, the master, the king of your life? Christians are praying right now that they're Lord and Savior, waiting for him to come. We want you to be a part of that number. Just say something to the Lord in prayer like, Father, I ask Jesus to come into my heart, change me, forgive me, and be my Lord and Savior. And then ask the Holy Spirit to fill you and use you. Right now as we're getting ready to go, saints, can I just ask you to, to, to let the Lord fill you today with power to be witnesses, all of us, whether or not you were just saved a minute ago or you've been saved for years. Can you ask the Lord to use you to be a kingdom ambassador? We'll close out in worship and prayer in just a moment. But are you willing to be a kingdom ambassador now? Because we're not supposed to seal it up, are we? We're supposed to go share it with the world. Christ is coming. Christ is coming. Get ready. Get ready. Fill us with your power, Jesus. Fill us with your boldness. Fill us with your words so we can speak to governments now, so that we can speak to politicians now so that we can speak to businesses now, so that we can speak to young people on the streets now. We can speak to our coworkers now. Oh, Lord, give us the words from this prophecy to speak to the generation we're in. A few moments right now, I pray for the Holy Spirit to fill us all up, to be his end-time witnesses. You're coming, Lord, and we want to be ready, doing the work that you set before us. Oh, Father the great Father of heaven and earth, may we serve your Son, Jesus, according to this prophecy we were given. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Can you bless the Lord one more time, saints? God bless you on Father's Day, men of God. Thank you for coming along with your families. You are dismissed. Have a wonderful day.